Times Episode 2, the podcast that wants to support the hashtag MeToo campaign, but there's four white men sat by the table. Thank you for all the positive feedback from Episode 1, and please follow us on Twitter at BehindTheTimes underscore. You can also find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. As usual, you're joined by myself, Will, Sean and Josh, but on this episode we have a special guest, Tom, who works in NHS. Yeah, so the topic I'm bringing to the table today is regarding cannabis legislation. It's a fairly hot topic at the moment. One thing that's recently come up in the news is regarding a six-year-old epileptic, Alfie Dingley. He has a fairly serious form of epilepsy and has up to about 30 fits a day. So recently, he his family took him to the Netherlands to trial a cannabis-based medicine. This particular medicine is available in the UK, but it's used primarily for people that suffer with multiple sclerosis, MS. It reduced his seizures to around 20 a year. This request in the UK to have medical marijuana for Alfie was rejected by the Home Office, primarily because it is only used for MS. Now, of course, this case in point I view as completely ridiculous. It's obvious that medical cannabis is a huge benefit to people like Alfie who suffer with severe epilepsy. But that's not my actual argument regarding cannabis legislation. I do view that it should be available as a medicine, but my argument is that we need a complete overhaul of the uh, legislation regarding cannabis to one of legalisation and full regulation. Previous arguments have been to just decriminalise marijuana, and the reason why I'm against decriminalisation is that it leaves the drugs market in the hands of organised crime. There was an example in Lambeth in uh, South London in 2002, They experimented by decriminalising marijuana and what that actually led to was a huge increase in drug-related crimes in the area to the extent that the housing housing prices reduced massively. Now, why I argue for a regulated market, really, it's along the same basis of things like alcohol and cigarettes. So having a regulated market ensures that there are standards in quality and in purity. Just take into account another illegal drug. So over the past few months and years there's been uh, issues regarding heroin being laced with a another drug called fentanyl now fentanyl acts similarly to heroin but it is you know multiple times stronger and far more dangerous to people has caused multiple overdoses and deaths again to think of another drug spice now spice is just a chemical which is sprayed onto plant matter and then that plant matter is smoked in a joint as you do with cannabis now, I could easily see cannabis being laced with the same drug spice and being sold as just cannabis. I'd be surprised if that hasn't already happened. Spice was legal, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it, it was a legal, legal high, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's a very dangerous drug. So having a regulated market ensures that things like that won't happen. When you buy your cannabis, you know, it'll have information, however much THC is in it, however much CBD, and that'll help the consumer make an informed decision on what they're going to smoke. Another reason is a purely economic one. It's been estimated that the cannabis market in the UK, if it was regulated, would be worth between six and seven billion pounds per year, with tax receipts estimated at being between one and two billion pounds per year. So at the moment, the main issue regarding cannabis is one of mental health. There's been quite a few studies that say the more cannabis you smoke, in particular skunk, the higher likelihood you are to have psychotic episodes and things like that. The main chemicals in it are CBD and THC. So CBD actually acts as a sort of anchor to THC. CBD is the pain relief chemical you get from cannabis. THC is the one that gets you really high. 
even if you have high levels of THC, if you had higher levels of CBD, that would anchor the psychotic effects of the THC. And what we're having at the moment in the illegal market is increasingly high levels of THC and inexistent levels of CBD. Uh, so having a regulated market would ensure that you'd have a consistent level of CBD across all types of it being sold. Okay, I just want to unpick something you're saying. So you're saying that we should legalise all drugs. Is- um, well, I mean, in particular at the moment I'm talking about cannabis, but um, my overall view of drugs is that they should be legalised, it should be regulated. Right, okay. So would the evidence base of medical usage affect your proposal at all? If it was to be shown that there was no medical value in taking marijuana, would you still well, that, be that's, that's hypothetical because it's already been shown there is medical usage for marijuana. Well, well, for I, CBD in particular, which is a compound found in marijuana. It might have been shown to your satisfaction, no. but I think the evidence base on this is quite limited. Well, it has been shown to improve symptoms in MS. I mean, yeah. you're talking about Sativix, which is like yes. a, a synthetic cannabinoid-containing spray, but smoking weed has been shown to improve symptoms. And they're talking about spasticity, which is a yeah. tightness in your muscles that you get with MS, and it has been shown pretty well that cannabis helps those symptoms. It doesn't stop disease progression, but no. it, it helps symptom control. So and in palliative care and people in chemotherapy, it helps nausea and weight yeah. loss and things like that. And that's, I think that's pretty well evidence-based. Okay. I'm not saying that this is, you know, this new miracle drug that's going to cure everyone from everything. By no means. The evidence that I've seen goes along with what uh, Tom said. It's mainly, you know, pain relief, issues with nausea, spasticity with MS and, and stuff like that that is fairly conclusively shown to help with. Okay. So what's the evidence base for things like cannabis oils? Because these are things that are sold online, yeah, and that there are miraculous claims about it. So I just we just need to unpack exactly what we're saying it's used for. Well, that's uh, the the cannabis oil, the CBD oil, is just a highly concentrated liquid of CBD. I can't say that I've seen anything to say that those miraculous cases are in any way based in fact. So, so the usage we're talking about is to, is smoking it for sort of pain relief. NHS bonds. <laughs> like that. Okay. And besides that, anyway, I mean, if there weren't, if there wasn't any evidence to suggest what my argument is there regarding medical cannabis, then you wouldn't have seen however many states in the US that have medical cannabis. You have it in Canada, they're pushing through legislation to have medical cannabis at the moment. Same in Germany, it's been in the Netherlands for years. So, you know, I, I feel that if all these other countries are already doing that, it's... The, the tide's turning, isn't it, towards it? In America, it's happening quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. But like I said, a lot of it is medical, first of all. Yeah. It's slowly going yeah. more relaxed, more relaxed. Yeah, yeah, of course. People, well, people are use people are claiming probably things that they don't have to get the medical yeah. marijuana, which probably happens with everything, I guess, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. There was an American comedian, Seth Rogen, I saw him being interviewed, and he was going on about filling out a, a form in the back of a magazine saying, yeah, I've got uh, sleep apnea and uh, so all these other issues, and then send it off in the post and then gets his prescription for medical marijuana. He said, you know, it's that easy. You don't have to go and see a doctor. Or That's how it was then, anyway. Well, I think that's like in California, it's like a pseudo-legalised market yeah. where you turn up to someone who's going to prescribe you cannabis and you say, oh, I can't sleep. Yeah, I've got a sore leg. Yeah, exactly. Uh, got back pain, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that's quite different from using cannabis in children with epilepsy. Or of things course, like, yeah. yeah. Guarded by Alfie Dingley. He wasn't being given THC. He wasn't getting high. He wasn't smoking a joint. He was being given uh, CBD oil. I think it was Sativex, wasn't it, actually? Which is just CBD. There, there wasn't any of the negative side effects of him getting the munchies or anything like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> Munchies as a negative side effect. <laughs> well, it depends what you're eating, doesn't it? You know. Well, this is the problem. Every time you talk about it, you just picture this little boy having a, a, a joint. I don't know. That's what people think. That's what when people read it in the papers, that's what people will think. That's yeah, well, that's that's the problem. That, with it, that's it? going to happen because it's been you know it's been an illicit narcotic for however many years in this country. Just because something is illegal that automatically makes the, the conversation around it become one of fear, become mm. one of negativity. It doesn't allow grey areas. But just to move on to something similar, in terms of damage that, that cannabis causes, uh, so there was a study by the Royal Society of Public Health in 2016. Uh, they ranked numerous drugs, gave it a number, dependent on how much damage it does to that person's health, those around them, to society, the economic effects, that kind of stuff. And the, basically, the higher the number, the more dangerous that drug is. And the Royal Society for Public Health is a very respected institution. It's not just some whack job, you know, down the shop with a pen and paper. Sitting in his basement. Yeah, exactly. So the, the number that they gave uh, cannabis was 20. I don't know exactly what out of, but 20. Tobacco. So 20 substances were more harmful than cannabis? No, no, no. Just the level of damage is 20. I know, I don't know what it's out of, because there was... Uh, there was <laughs> like, there was 25. Like, well, that's the thing. No, no, no. Well, listen, listen. Right? 20 out of 20. <laughs> so... They missed the trick, then, because they called it 420. <laughs> <laughs> so, cannabis... Cannabis was giving a rating of 20 on the damage scale. <laughs> but we don't know out of what. Right, let me finish. Let me finish. And this wasn't some guy in his basement eating donuts like this movie. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Go so on. yeah, so cannabis was given 20 on the damage scale. Tobacco was given 26. Um, Cocaine was given 27. Heroin was given 55. And alcohol was given a number of 72. So, you know, yeah. that's basically saying that the, the damage that can be caused by cannabis is far less than, so than alcohol. Is that damage I mean, to society as well as damage? Yes. Yeah, that's what yes. would be why alcohol is so high. What, what was, course, what was yeah. co- Cocaine was 27? Yes. I'm I'm kind of struggling with this statistic a little bit. So they sort of costed the damage that is currently being afflicted by these substances on society. Is that it? Well, not just on society, on your personal health, those immediately around you, on society, on... So they must they, they assign some value to the individual's health that's yeah. included in that calculation. But is, is that um, the amount of damage that is currently done? Because alcohol will cause more damage because yeah. it's more available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course it will. It would be higher. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. D- depending on how they calculate that could affect... Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that's the thing is if cannabis was legal, then, you, you know, arguably... It would increase. Potentially, potentially, yes, it would increase. I mean, you can't say for definite because you don't know because it's not legal. Yeah. You know, there's a danger with this argument because it's often cited that cannabis is very safe. It doesn't create violence. It doesn't. Um, you can't. It's very hard to overdose on it, and so all of these things. It's a very safe drug, and therefore it should be legal. Yeah. But by the flip side, mm. wouldn't it be just as reasonable to say alcohol is very damaging? Therefore, we should make it illegal. Isn't it the same argument? Yeah, yeah, no, it is the same argument. But how exactly would you now create a prohibition around alcohol? It would be impossible. It's a mockery that there's a prohibition regarding cannabis because it is so widely available. You know, you can go to pretty much anywhere in the country and, you know, within five miles of where you are, you would likely be able to get hold of cannabis. Okay, it's a strange argument to make, though, is to say that 
people are going to commit this crime, yeah. therefore it should be legal. People commit lots of crimes. Yeah. Uh, speeding. People speed on the road all the time. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have speed limits. No, of course. So, so, so you, you kind of get into a dangerous territory with this, but you make, you make exceptional arguments about cannabis that you wouldn't apply to other things. Well, you look at the consequences of the crime, don't you? Like, if you speed when you could potentially end someone's life in a car crash. I mean, I don't think... Cannabis isn't completely benign, but smoking a joint doesn't kill someone. Like, the consequence of being in possession of cannabis isn't the same as the consequence of speeding, and that would be the distinction. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to having to argue something I don't really believe, to be honest. But uh, I think there is a disagreement that I think has followed us through from last week, because I would legalise all drugs and, and regulate them, as you've said. But I think that you should do it from the point of view that we are allowed as individuals to do things that are harmful to our bodies. Yeah, I'm allowed to cut my arm off if I. Well, it wouldn't be advisable. I think you'd end up in a yeah, mental institution. I'm not sure I'd get through the bone, to be honest. <laughs> but but the point is that we're allowed legally to do things that damage ourselves. And from that point of view, whether weed is harmful or not is kind of by the by. If I would like to do it, I should be allowed to. So I, I don't like these damage-based arguments that you kind of the positive benefits I think it's just it's my body if I want to inject heroin or take pills and I should I should be allowed to yeah you, you, um, you don't want a society where people are just taking drugs and going crazy all the time like cocaine heroin well, no, but you, like that. You, you could say the same thing about alcohol alcohol's legal people don't just drink all the time well some people do yeah but so they're alcoholics some but, people do yeah. yeah a new version of Weatherspoons <clears throat> pop up where it's cocaine and heroin on top of people just go there all day do you <laughs> cocaine know I mean? spoons <laughs> yeah Hook yourself up to an amphetamine drip. <laughs> Some of them are like that anyway, to be fair. But I say the argument is, if alcohol was invented today, it would be a class A drug because it's the the opposite way. Yeah. There's no way of going back now. Does a shared history and culture count for nothing? So we, so we say we say if alcohol was invented today, it would be made illegal, and I think yeah, it would. But it wasn't invented today. It was invented a long time ago. We yeah. have a long history that revolves around alcohol and pubs and community I mean should we be discussing alcohol in isolation of all of that that infrastructure the community aspects the history of it the social um, aspects of it you can look at how drinks develop gin was a sort of working class poison and it's become this very hip fashionable small batch product so do we need to consider alcohol in its social context well, so yeah. the, the idea that it's damaging therefore we should ban it Oh no! Well, that's not, well that, I mean, that's that's just that's just a point, you know. At the end of the day, if alcohol was found today, then very likely that it would be banned. That's not me saying that I think alcohol should be banned. No, but you are using it in support of an argument that means that we should legalise cannabis. It, yeah. In a kind of convoluted way. Yeah, but there's more to that argument than just that comparison with alcohol. Okay, I think we've got, to, we've got to unpick the components, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do think the state has a responsibility to look after its citizens. For example, like sugar doesn't get you high, but the state is going into massive steps to stop us eating sugar. I mean, if you legalise cocaine, then like, people are going to do loads of blow. <laughs> I think we've got a responsibility to stop people from doing that, and whether that's... Yeah, but wouldn't that... I think that's different from cannabis. I think cannabis is relatively benign. But wouldn't that be more of a public health issue than a criminal? issue? That would be a huge public health issue. I mean, it already is a public health issue. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that people don't get the help, access to help they need because it would be a legal drug. Yeah. But, I mean, I think there'd be loads of people in their 40s having heart attacks because they're... Potentially, but also... Cocaine. Yeah, potentially, but also <laughs> at the same time, a lot of the reasons uh, why people 
suffer from overdose to what I was saying about fentanyl with heroin. A lot of the cocaine in this country is between 1% and 4% yeah. pure. 1% and 4% cocaine, what the hell yeah. is the rest of it? Worming yeah. tablets. <laughs> you know, God knows what else. We've still seen dickheads on their 1% to 4% cocaine, so imagine what they'd be like if they're on 90%. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying let's get, you know, let's get higher. <laughs> let's get higher, more intolerable. It was, it was quite funny. It, was, it sounded for a second like you were complaining about the quality. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I mean, just to, to take it back onto the topic of, uh, of uh, cannabis, there's just a couple of points that I wanted to make. So regarding the government's current policy, it's a bit blasé now to say that the war on drugs has failed. I think, you know, quite a lot of people agree with that statement. And also the availability of cannabis in the UK just shows how ridiculous the current policy is. And just to reiterate that even further, in uh, 2015, the County Durham Police Constabulary announced that they would no longer pursue or prosecute small users or growers of, of cannabis. And in 2017 was the County Durham Cannabis Club event. Uh, the police did turn up to the event, but they only turned up because they had a, they didn't have the right event license. So they came, told them off, didn't shut it down, didn't arrest anyone, and left. This is the coercive arm. This is the coercive arm of the government, yeah, which is ignoring what is being told by the government. There's also an argument regarding how much would legalisation actually reduce the involvement of organised crime in black markets. So if cannabis was legalised tomorrow, would there still be a black market? My argument is, yeah, of course there would still be a black market. You look at the alcohol black market, it's very small, but there is still a black market for alcohol in the UK. The black market for cigarettes in the UK is much bigger. But the reason why I'd say a legalised and regulated cannabis market would reduce this is if you take uh, Washington State into account, purely on an economic level, the the costs of cannabis in Washington State in 2014 was around $23 per gram. In 2017, it was around $6 per gram. How involved an organised crime group would be in the, uh, the black market of cannabis? If they're not going to be making that much money off it, would they really get that involved? Or would they just go, you know what? Sack it, let's just leave that. I think that's the most compelling argument for it. I mean, if you look in this country, there's people being trafficked from Vietnam to run grow houses in the UK, and like that's just so unnecessary. Like the the risk to the drug isn't worth that degree of criminality around it. Is there a problem with it though? In that, to a certain extent, what you kind of advocate is a controlled market, so that involves some kind of taxation. To, well, presumably, because we, we accept that there are some negative externalities associated yeah. with uh, not just cannabis use, but other drug use in general. Yeah. And those externalities should be paid by a tax on, it, on the user yeah. at, at the point of sale. Well, yes. So, so what you end up doing <clears throat> is you, you legalise the market, but you control it and you extract the costs for the negative, the healthcare yeah, that comes like to smoking, it. Yeah, smoking. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. As, as we do with alcohol and cigarettes. Yeah. Which but, is what they do, that's what they actually do in Colorado. Yeah, you know they, the 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 tax that's taken from the cannabis market in Colorado is used to help low income families, that kind of stuff, and to educate around the use of, of cannabis. Yes, yeah. so so, so you, you tax it to disincentivize usage to a certain extent, but also to pay for the negative externalities. But there's a problem in that you're saying that this reduces cost and then reduces the incentives of criminality. But the more tax that you put on it. Yeah the more attractive it then becomes to these criminal gangs. So tobacco smuggling is a bigger thing now than it was 20 years ago yeah. when you could buy a pack of cigs for pennies. Yeah. So 
so you kind of stuck in a in a difficult middle position there, and it, it oh, yeah. perhaps isn't a reason not to do it, but it is something of concern that if you if your argument is simultaneously that taxing pays for the negative side and also it removes criminality, yeah. you kind of you have to play them off against <clears throat> each other at, to course. some extent. Yeah, of course, and. One argument as to why I believe the prices of cigarettes is is far too high and that taxation needs to be looked at at that because that is encouraging organised gangs to get more and more involved in it. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say I've got the exact known price that we should sell it at that's going to hit that sweet spot that's going to mm. give us enough money to pay for the damages and it's going to prevent people from organised crime getting involved. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm all I'm saying is that's one area that's, uh, that's useful in that. I think you should just... Sorry. I was just going to say, should we... Um... Should we move on to a different subject? Because we've done thirty minutes on that. <laughs> I just can I just I just want to add for for the edit that I'm a smug ex smoker, so the tax on cigarettes should be increased. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I'm going for a cigarette. <laughs> the tax is the only effective public one of the only effective public health measures to make people stop reduce smoking. So yeah. I think we should tax as yeah. much as possible and as, accept as a... and accept that there's a certain amount of flat market. In, in this part of the podcast, we're going to talk about NHS now. We're going to cover a couple of things. Obviously, we've got Tom here, who works in NHS. We're going to talk about seven-day NHS, which is a big thing at the moment. We're going to talk about funding of the NHS, which is always a big thing as well. So, yeah, give me two secs. I wasn't ready for what else I was going to say, then. You have to cut this down, Josh. No, I include it. I think it's just uh, <laughs> really what I like to hear. Yeah. Long, long silences. <laughs> I think we've just found the trailer for this week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, 7-day NHS, can this be achieved without breaking the bank, basically? Which is the big argument at the minute. Tom may know more than us as well that the government are trying to get this new contract for doctors and junior doctors where they'll work seven days a week, but they get paid no more, from what I understand, or they won't get paid as much as what they should be getting. The big argument always with the NHS is is there so much money given to it that it just spends money unwisely and it does stuff it doesn't need to do or it funds procedures that it doesn't need to do like the famous ones where you know that that girl got a boob job on the NHS because she felt insecure and stupid things like that, that always pop up in the media but are probably quite rare in reality or should it be something that whatever the cost we should go for it because people who go to hospital on a weekend shouldn't have a higher chance of dying. I don't know what you guys think. You know, I know Josh, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on funding for NHS as well. Yeah, there's not a lot of graphs here. I'll put some of these graphs on Twitter because I've made them and I want Please look at my graphs. Um, but I think it is just worth, before you, before you get into that, I think it is worth saying, Tom, you are a junior doctor mm. who has gone on strike over the junior oh, no, doctor's I, was, I hadn't qualified when the strikes happened. Would you strike? So we were campus to striking and I was going to strike, but then the strikes were called off. So right. I, I would be for striking. Right, okay. And so, do you want to just, in a nutshell, explain to us why why you would have striked? Um, so, so, the dispute was about a new contract for junior doctors and essentially getting a seven-day working week into the contract. But I, I think there was a lot... No one really understood the contract because it was very, very complicated. I think mainly the strike was a strike against dissatisfaction at the government <laughs> rather than any specific. 
and the general running of the NHS, underfunding of the NHS that has happened since 2010, when the, since the Tories have got into power, really. I think you could go into the specifics of the contract, but I don't think that's what it's about. I think it, the whole dispute was more about a general feeling of dissatisfaction. Right, OK. Basically, the, the government mm. tried to squeeze mm. everything they can out of the NHS, yeah. but not putting the hand in the pocket to really yeah. give it what it needs, and basically. So, and to answer the question, is a seven-day NHS possible? No, it's it's just not. It's 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 not possible. There's not enough resources for that. Yeah, but it could, it, could it be possible if there, if I there don't was think, I think it's push, big push well. So it's talking about a seven-day NHS, and that would include elective, so stuff like elective hip replacements, elective mm. knee replacements and stuff, to, and routine clinics to happen the weekend, which I don't think it needs to. Yeah. There's no need for that to happen Saturday, Sunday. It's a kind of argument around making the NHS into something that's going to be more of like a, a private organisation and that you can get a consultation on a Saturday mm. with Booper, but we've got a national health service. Like, why do you need that? Well, that's like know. saying it's that, all you know, pointless. Yeah, we, we we need to ensure that non-emergency operations need yeah. to happen twenty-four-seven. Yeah, I think you got to accept if you've got a nationalised health service that maybe you have to wait ten weeks to have your hip replaced, and that's fine because you can get cancer treatment seven days a week. You can get emergency treatment seven days a week. Mm. I mean, people work weekends. Hospitals don't close on Friday hospitals night. Hospitals don't close on a Friday night. You don't kick everyone out on a Friday. So I'll see you on Monday. Ring like, the bell. Yeah, it's just it's just an absolute fallacy. The NHS provides good emergency treatment and acute care seven days a week, twenty four hours a day. It always has provided some care, and now there's pretty good stuff in at the weekends. The study that was widely cited about deaths at the weekends has got a lot of flaws in this. Widely criticised, and whether those statistics hold up no one really knows so you can't really use that study as an example of higher death rates at the weekend when it's not really sure if that's valid or not there's been further studies that suggest that there's not a, a weekend effect i think it's, it's just been used to put through like a political agenda it's very different stuff happens on the weekend as well like well in the first part we'll talk about alcohol like a lot of that probably involves people coming in yeah, hitting themselves drunk taking up the resources that i mean at the front door yeah, yeah um but not doesn't feel a on a medical so. ward on assassinate yeah. like you don't see any of that uh, yeah, yeah. like that, that's not a concern from the jobs I've been doing that's never been a problem from mm. my experience in yeah. A&E it certainly is and well, yeah. in yeah. the hospital I work in there's police in the department on a Friday and Saturday night but that's a completely different <laughs> argument <laughs> I mean it is interesting that public opinion in this is shifting towards the same thing as you're saying public opinion thinks that the NHS is underfunded the main reason people are disappointed with the NHS is a lack of funding and a lack of staff. That's that's public opinion, and that's increased massively since 2015. As you're saying, I emailed about locum cover. <laughs> like, there's, not, there's not enough staff. It does feel that the message, kind of from NHS staff, is that we we don't have not we don't have the tools for the job, but we don't have the tools to do the job that we'd like. And it seems that the public knows that and kind of appreciates that. But it's not being heard by government. And it's, it seems a bit strange to me. It's a reality with the NHS that further down the line, people getting older, you know, the usual arguments, people living for longer, it's going to cost more and more. At the end of the day, it's going to be really hard to fund in the future without like a dedicated NHS tax, basically, which would be totally separate on your wage slip and it'll just go towards NHS. So everyone pays, I don't know, £20 a month that goes just towards NHS. It doesn't sound like a lot, but obviously everyone paying it 
but just goes direct towards them. The same argument that the three hundred and fifty million pound a week NHS Boris Johnson bus <laughs> argument that got mm. people's attention and did work. People often talk about this dedicated NHS tax, but it exists. This is what we pay national insurance for. Mm. We already have this. So in 1966, the NHS received £20 billion at 2015 prices. By 2014, this was £150 billion. So, yeah, we'd love more money to go to the NHS. And nobody's going to dispute that. But we need to acknowledge that somebody has to pay for this. We have a dedicated NHS tax. And the state is still running a massive deficit. When does it get to the point where we say that the NHS has enough money? Does that point exist? But could you not say that the the costs that we're currently experiencing from the NHS, they're largely down to mismanagement? If you look at the PFI contracts, there's been cases reported on a certain type of cream that if you went and bought it yourself would cost you two or three pounds, but on the NHS, because it goes through this system, costs it costs the NHS 12 pounds. Yeah, well, that boots, boots are doing that, weren't they? Yeah, and then there's other issues of, you know, I've seen it reported of people being prescribed paracetamol. When, you know, a prescription costs how much is it now? Is it seven pounds something? Mm. But you can buy a packet of paracetamol from the shop for 20p. There's definite areas of waste in the NHS. Like, that's undeniable in any big organisation. There is going to be areas of waste, but I think on one of your graphs I was looking at earlier, there's the cost of healthcare in different countries. And in the UK, we have one of the lowest costs of healthcare. So... You can look at areas of inefficiency, but we do provide healthcare, which is pretty economic. Yeah. Health expenditure per capita. Yeah, so yeah. in the USA, was it nine... What is this? Nine... What is this? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this nonsense? <laughs> nine thousand? I don't know. Nine thousand of things. I and just then... want to say, I'm gonna, I'll put this graph on just to illustrate it. It says at the top, health expenditure per capita current US dollar. So, I mean... My graph is fine. <laughs> so the US spends twice as much as us on healthcare. Well, more than, yeah, absolutely. And, and doesn't provide a universal system. So you, you can look at the NHS and say there's inefficiencies, but that, that is pretty good value healthcare for what you get out of it. Yeah, and also I think we have to say that there are pros and cons to big organisations like the NHS. So in some cases there are loopholes where creams cost more than they should have paracetamol cost more than it should but also it gives us the NHS has buying power so in other words it can really reduce prices so yeah, to kind of to kind of pick out the negatives is a little bit disingenuous but you're right we, we need to pick them out to squeeze them yeah and with lots of new drugs in say the United States where they have a, a fully private healthcare system then that cost is eaten up by insurance companies but the UK say won't fund a new MS drug because it's too expensive and they look at how much it will affect quality of life per year and so the drug companies will generally negotiate with NICE and get a price that's less what they were trying to sell it for in the first place. So there is advantages to that. It is cost effective in some ways, but there's a lot of waste. And I'm sure it's like that in any organisation. There's a lot of going to work and banging your head against the wall because of the bureaucracy of it. But I don't think that's unique to the NHS. There's something about this that does work because the funding debate around the NHS is very polarised. And actually, you've just done exactly what I worry about, which is that we picked out the US as a, a choice. And it, we always seem to fall into this discussion of it's the NHS or it's the US system of private insurance. And for, I mean, for starters, there are 52 different states in America, all of which have different... So not 50. Um, 
There are 50 states. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I'm Is that not on your graph? <laughs> Do you know what? Last week I got the fucking the wrong amendment. Hello, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really I'm really going to piss off all the Americans, any Americans that are listening. All the Americans are listening, <laughs> and they're all very angry. I, I'll have you know that we got a retweet by Trump. So, um, <laughs> there's 50 different models of healthcare in the US, but also there are thousands and thousands of different potential hybrids between those two extremes and sort of things that don't sort of fall between them. So the UK is the only nation and the NHS is the only system that insists upon the free at the point of use across the board. I mean, I know you get prescription charges, but the NHS is completely unique. You know, our, our allies in Europe don't do it, Korea, Japan, none of these countries do it. Even if you say, let's think about moving away from that, you get branded with all sorts of things. Can we not have a reasonable discussion about funding? Should people pay Fiverr when they go to the A&E? Just little things like that. Is that really so bad? Um, I'd argue that paying a small amount at the point of care is very damaging because we're not very good in this country about providing healthcare for people who don't seek it. Homeless people, for example. If you're a homeless person, they have very poor access to healthcare. If you then charge what would be a nominal amount to most people, to these people, they just won't access healthcare. So I I don't think that's a, a particularly good idea at all. However, talking about should we have like in Australia had some people pay for insurance which is then means tested that's a different argument I had a look at Australia it's quite interesting so it's very complicated yeah so the, the, the basic system is that it's free at the point of use so any national can go and get free health care but there's a tax system which incentivizes uh, private insurance so once you earn above a certain threshold the tax system starts to penalise you if you don't have private health care and I think it's kind of interesting this idea that you can means test access to free healthcare without perhaps they also have a limit on how much you can pay I think there's like a four and a half thousand dollar limit on it's a heavily regulated market so it doesn't just keep going up and up and up no no, you can only it's not like in America is the other example where people have to sell their houses to pay for cancer treatment like there is a a, a relatively low limit on how much you can pay for healthcare in one year and then the state will pick it up after that is that something to to be looked at? I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say that I'm advocating the Australian system because I'm because I'm not. But what I am saying is that there's loads and loads of different models, and we don't look at them. If anybody tries to do it, and I'm I don't want to support Jeremy Hunt at all. <laughs> um, but if somebody wants to look at reorganising NHS funding and looking at different plans and different systems, they're immediately branded with. But the US is awful and all these people don't have insurance and it costs so much and mortality rate is this. And you're like, yeah, but we don't have to go to the US model. There's middle grounds. And if all of Europe disagreed with our policy on something, I'd kind of say, well, you know, these are our closest allies. These are countries that we associate with and we have shared values with. We should be looking to them and thinking, why don't we have the same system as them? Is there a reason? And we, but we don't. We don't look at the NHS. And I mean, there was a questionnaire, what do people most like about being British and number one was NHS. Well, number two was our history, which is a bit fucked up. Like free healthcare and imperialism. <laughs> yeah. it, it, just, it just seems to me like there is a reasonable debate to be had, but it's always boycotted. Well, there's a reason why Jeremy Hunt, in the, like, the longest serving health secretary, because no one really wants to do it or take control of it because he gets he so much... Well, he seems to be quite happy to do it. I mean, Theresa May tried to move him and he refused to move. 
Yeah, he's, he's, he's got this high-profile high position, but he's the longest-serving one there's ever been, which proves that people don't want to be in that position for a long time because, like you said, people don't want to do anything or try anything because it is hard and it is so complicated and there's so many people involved. I'd also say as well that I don't necessarily like trusting these opinion polls. I say that like British people, the most thing they like the most about the UK is the NHS because at a time when the NHS is constantly in the, in the news you know mm. it's constantly going on that it's going to fail or it's going to be turned into the US system um, so people are already going to think about that I mean if it was 30 years ago they might be talking about something else what exactly I don't know um, I found a really good graph that I wanted to, that I'd love to talk about <laughs> and i tell you what we'll... they don't really work in this <laughs> medium judge right? <laughs> <laughs> okay I'll do a quiz with you, okay? So let's imagine somebody was doing continuous opinion polls about the NHS, and they were asking people based on party allegiance, okay? So during the years 1983 to 1997, the supporters of which political party thought the NHS was doing really well? Conservatives. Yes. And the supporters of which political parties thought the NHS was doing really badly? Labour. Labour and Liberal. And then, all of a sudden, in 1999, that flips. <laughs> so that Labour supporters think the NHS is doing really well, and the Conservative voters think it's doing really badly. And then 2010, Conservative voters think it's doing really well, and so do Liberal voters. <laughs> and then when you get to 2015, the Liberal voters drop off, and the Conservative voters think it's doing really well. So there is... I mean, you say that, but then there is objective markers of the NHS struggling in the last eight years. Yeah. Like, four-hour wait time in A&E, yeah. waiting this time for operations people meeting their cancer two-week wait times, like, these are all dropped off. Yeah. So, I kind of see what you're saying, but there is objective markers that the NHS hasn't functioned as well since the Tories took over in 2010. And yeah. there is a very distinct point in 2010 when these things start to change. I'm, I'm not disputing that. But perception matters. Mm. And in a society where the government is decided by the population, there is bias. And you're saying there's so many claims and counterclaims around it, and there's so much... Deciding what you want to prove before you find it, that it, it makes discussions of this kind really difficult. Mm. And I know it's, it's a cheap thing that you hear all the time around Brexit and things, is that people are struggling to get to grips with what's going on. I think the NHS is one of these areas, like Brexit, where it is really difficult and people do fall back on party allegiance at the end of the day. They, they listen to people that they trust. Mm. I mean, an example of that, I guess, is we were talking about the weekend effect earlier and that's mm. not something that's been shown conclusively by anyone and is very disputed. So if you can't have statisticians doing a study on when people die in hospital and get that right, how are you going to look at the NHS as a whole? Yeah. It's almost impossible to do. But that's not helped by the narrative of it's the NHS or the US. No. I do wonder as well, you know, when a lot of these figures are brought up and brought to attention, how much of it is focusing like primarily on the emergency services. So take, for example, trying to go and see your GP. So at the moment, I actually had to book in to have a GP appointment and I rang them up last week and told them it's a yeah, five-week waiting list and somebody's actually feeling quite ill, go straight to the hospital. So that's putting more pressure on that aspect. So... Like I said, I do wonder how much of the, the, the problems that are being caused are being caused by that. By users. Yeah. Mm. Like you said before, we're waiting for people to get to the hospital, to the doctors, and then we're, we're dealing with the issues there. But really, a lot of the issues could be traced back to lifestyles, people's health, smoking, drinking, eating fatty foods, takeaways, McDonald's every day. And then when they get to the NHS, okay, we'll do everything, we'll get you better. Then they go back out in the world and people are living... Not people aren't living right, and that's what's causing issues as well. The most effective health measure probably ever 
isn't a medication, it isn't more funding for the NHS, it was the smoking ban in public places in mm. 2008 or whatever it was. That saved more lives than recruiting more doctors or nurses, by far. Yeah. Like, and you should be, and we underfund our public health like, system in this country massively and ignore it. And that there's a lot of there's a lot of money to be saved because as you say if you stop people eating shite and smoking and drinking too much then they won't pitch up a hospital. Yeah, well that's that's the thing, and that's the government put a measure in place where we'll see the effects in twenty years down the line, but it's hard to gauge the success of the measurement now because you won't see the health benefits for years down the line. Mm. Like saying, it takes ten years for sometimes we start it's noticing. It's not politically attractive. Well, it's similar with the sugar tax. You know that's coming into play in April, and studies aren't really going to know the full effects of it for another 10, 15, 20 years. And I know I spoke about my American friends last time, but. Again, when I was in America, I was chatting about the NHS and he was saying how stupid it would be to have a system where someone can drink themselves nearly to death, have a liver transplant, drink themselves nearly to death, have a liver transplant. And when I tried to explain to him that's not how it works, you know, he didn't really listen. I'm just On the difference between American and uh, Britain, I just need to pause to pour the tea. Actually. <laughs> 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 Typically British. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> The contentious issue of the evening or the afternoon. <laughs> Tea. <laughs> Legalise weed, give the NHS more money, but don't put the <laughs> I, I think with the NHS stuff, we're probably missing a massive elephant in the room that is that we can fund the NHS and acute hospital care as much as we want, but if we don't fund social care, then it's all irrelevant. Uh, I've seen it personally maybe four or five times where someone is medically fit on a ward and is about to go home can't go home because they don't have a care package or like carers to come in or a bed in a nursing home gets pneumonia and dies that that's not a that's not an uncommon thing at all that's something that happens every day yeah well this is the main issue isn't it, really? and social care is very very expensive mm. well yeah more so maybe even medical care and again, again, I'm going to do something that I don't, I don't enjoy doing, but it makes sense to amalgamate health and social care into one department. I think Jeremy Hunt is right on that. And also, the Tories proposed a reasonable funding idea at the last election, which well, was... Which was previously which, proposed by Ed Miliband. Which was previously proposed by Ed Miliband. <laughs> like, like most things. <laughs> yeah. And that is that your estate is taxed, or you pay for your end-of-life care out of your earnings when you die or have your house, or any assets that you, you possess. This is, this is a reasonable proposal, but it was shouted down. From a political point of view, it was suicide. But it's a reasonable proposal, and it should be implemented at the start of somebody's parliament. But wasn't that proposal, uh, it wasn't after they died, it was while they're, during the time they're having, having care? I think the bill racks up while you're alive. 
but it's collected. Because I, I thought it was reported on that people would have to sell their home if they needed to go into care well, immediately. Or was that just the news picking it up? That's probably the scare tactics. I think that was the, um, the scare tactics of it, is that people want to sell your home to pay for your right, tax. Yeah. But that, that wasn't ever part of the proposals. Mm. The, the problem is, is that at the end of life is when you use the NHS most. Mm. Um, and that's when you need it, and that's when you are most expensive to the taxpayer. It's also, coincidentally, the period of your life where you're less likely to be paying tax. Mm. But so, you spent your whole life paying into it at that point, though. But again, that's an argument that you spent all your time paying into it, so now this is the time where you reap what mm. you paid in well, for 50 years. I mean, I mean that's the argument people use. It's like, I've, I've bought cigarettes, I've paid my taxes, I should have my treatment paid for, and it's bollocks because it doesn't oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the same thing with social care. Like, I think it costs like £2,000 a week or something. It's all ridiculous for like full nursing level care. It's very expensive. Yeah, so very few of us, and certainly most people in the country, some 90-something percent of people, receive more from the state than they pay in. So the idea that you kind of contribute, therefore you are entitled to what you get out, is kind of, kind of like fallacious anyway. But also the idea of... I've contributed all my life, therefore I'm just taking out what I've put in. Is also wrong because it's paid for out of existing tax revenue. Mm. So it's not that you have some pot somewhere that is being saved that you get to withdraw from. It's that taxpayers now are paying for care now. Yeah. But it's worse than that because we're running a deficit. It's the taxpayers of the future are paying for the care that is being received now. So the idea that we kind of pay in, therefore we should get out, doesn't really work. But it is a lot of people like to say it like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. well it's easy to understand, isn't it? Whereas like the tax system's incredibly complicated. Yeah, and if you want to sort of bring the deficit into it, people kind of switch off and glaze over. Which, you know, fair enough. <laughs> it's, uh, but the deficit's not like running an overdraft. It's slightly different, isn't it? Y- yeah, it's slightly different. Like you can't equate you know, the national income of a country to your bank account and you get overdrawn and if only I could <laughs> it, was, it was a big Margaret Thatcher thing wasn't it she described the state as a household and you're yeah. right it kind of it's really simplistic yeah. isn't it and I don't understand do you understand the economics of it oh yes it's far too complicated for so you Josh doesn't, <laughs> Josh doesn't understand the economics I'm not going to start you, you won't understand the, the point of it is, is whether or not you have to do it. I mean, the economics of it kind of by the by, but we accept that there is a deficit that is going to have to be paid at some point, mm. or we're going to have to default on debts. Just to go with the deficit isn't the debt, is it? It's the interest no. on yeah. the debt. That's the main thing. We're not even paying off the interest. Well, the deficit is the shortfall between annual tax revenue mm. and annual public spending. So, so the deficit each year is added on to the debt. <laughs> but it's all, it's all linked to the NHS because the people are healthier, better lifestyles, better social cohesion, people not hating each other, fighting each other. The economy would grow. People would have more jobs and work harder. Yeah. But Linking back to, to last week, that was one of the arguments for UBI. People won't necessarily need to use the NHS and stuff like that as often because they'll be able to afford to pay for things like heating. Like eating well. I mean, the that's an interesting argument, isn't it? Because if you look at the first bit of welfare state which was introduced in our country as liberal reforms in like 1905 and yeah. 1910, they weren't introduced because we wanted everyone to be healthier. It was because we couldn't recruit enough healthy people to fight in Crimea. Yeah. So, no, the Boer War. The Boer War, whatever. But we didn't have enough healthy working age men to go and fight in a war. And that's that's the basis of our welfare state. It's not because these yeah. people were particularly nice or mm. they wanted everyone to be healthy. So maybe yeah. there is an argument for... I'm going to bring the US system into this again. 
One of the reasons that the US system is so expensive is because of the lifestyle choices, not because of the systemic failures of private healthcare, although I don't think any of us would say that the US system is great. The link between big expenditure and obesity, the big epidemic of our age. And they're consumers as well in healthcare. But then some places in this country, do you know, life expectancy is in poorer parts of Glasgow. Below the retirement age. Yeah, it's like 55. So... Well, when did they are? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And in Newcastle, where I work, if you look at the difference in life expectancy between like a wealthy suburb and one of the poorer sub- suburbs, and the life expectancy difference is 15 years, Jeez. three miles apart. Mm. Jeez. Like, there's huge health inequalities. And unless you look at treating these or doing something about them, then the, that's the problem. Well, that's the social economic effect, isn't it? Well, I think just as a. You know, as a as a final point, I mean, do you do you have any uh, views on how this system could be solved, or are you still on the fence about it? Me? Yeah. Well. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think one thing we need to do is we need to stop beating on uh, managers, and we so the the NHS mm. needs managing, mm. and a good a good management structure is is necessary for a functioning NHS. So we need to do that. We need to be open to ideas. We need to look around the world. There's, there's however many sovereign nations, they've all got individual healthcare systems. Some of them work better than ours in some way. Some of them don't work as well as ours. And we, and we need to start, we need to like learn from other. From other One systems. thing I'd, I'd say is that the idea of a seven-day NHS, I think that's a very catch-all solution to a multitude of problems. You know, just from that conversation before, we were talking about Glasgow. You know, the health needs in Glasgow are going to be completely different to the health needs in London, which are going to be completely different to the health needs in Liverpool. You know, I, I think each area is going to have its own particular problems and whatever system we ever go forward with or if we stay with the same one, you need to focus more localised on those issues rather than just throwing a net over and saying that's going to solve everything. Yeah, it's been a particularly bad year, mm. a particularly bad winter for the NHS, but on the whole provide a pretty good service mm, yeah. for the money that gets put into it you have been listening to Behind the Times with me Josh Sean Will and special guest Dr Tom subscribe to us on iTunes find us on SoundCloud or follow us on Twitter at Behind the Times underscore feel free to get in touch with any ideas feedback but don't be too Cheers, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.